The SS Eastland was built in 1902 to carry 500 people for lake excursions and to haul produce on the return trips to Chicago. The boat had no keel, was top-heavy, and relied on poorly designed ballast tanks to keep it upright. Repeated modifications increased the vessel's speed and passenger capacity, and made it less stable. Then, the 1912 sinking of the Titanic gave rise to the passing of the Federal Seamen's Act in 1915. The law required the retrofitting of a complete set of lifeboats on the Eastland. During the debate over the bill, the general manager of the Detroit and Cleveland Navigation Company had warned that some Great Lakes vessels would turn turtle. If you attempted to navigate them with the additional weight on the upper decks, despite this warning, by July 1915, the Eastland, which had been designed to carry six lifeboats, was carrying 11 lifeboats, 37 life rafts, and enough life jackets for all 2,500 passengers plus crew. Most were stowed on the upper decks. No tests were conducted to determine how the additional weight affected the boat's stability. This additional weight probably made the Eastland more dangerous, and it worsened the already severe problem of the boat being top-heavy. Early in the morning in downtown Chicago, Illinois, on Saturday, July twenty-fourth, nineteen fifteen, the air was filled with anticipation and excitement. The weather was cool, and light rain fell. Thousands gathered along the Chicago River for Western Electric's fifth annual employee picnic. More than seven thousand tickets had been purchased for the day-long festivities. The employees worked in Cicero, Illinois. The SS Eastland was part of a fleet of five excursion boats assigned to take Western Electric employees, families, and friends. 38 miles across Lake Michigan to Michigan City, Indiana, the steamship was set to head east along the Chicago River to Lake Michigan and then south to Michigan City. The Eastland was to be the first boat leaving that morning. It was docked at the Clark Street Bridge on the Chicago River. Michigan City, Indiana, was the ideal location for the employee picnic. Michigan City is home to the Lakefront Washington Park, which at the time reportedly offered various attractions, including a roller coaster, electric merry-go-round, dancing pavilion, picnic grounds, baseball park, bathing beach with bathhouses, bandstand, bowling alleys, and a photo studio. The picnickers were predominantly young singles, and many saw it as an opportunity to meet other eligible singles. The woman dressed in wide-brimmed hats, long dresses, stockings, corsets, and fancy boots. The men dressed in their Sunday best. In the early 1900s, employees worked a six-day work week, so for many, a day at Washington Park meant a day off of work to be enjoyed by nothing more than rest and relaxation. People enjoyed the wooded sections of the park and engaging in peaceful conversation with their coworkers, friends, and neighbors. Many of the picnickers wanted to be on the first ship to depart. They awoke early with excitement. 
We got up at 4.30 in the morning, wrote Mrs. C.C. Kelly, and left our house at 5.40 to get the 6 a.m. train so as to get to the boat and get good seats. At 6.30 a.m., passengers began boarding the Eastland in preparation for the 7.30 a.m. departure. Boarding of the ship ran at a rate of about 50 passengers per minute. Soon, the 2,500 passenger capacity was reached. The ship was packed with hard-working people, mostly immigrant families. As a steady drizzle began to fall, many of the women, especially those with young children, took refuge below the deck. In the main cabin, a band played for dancing. On the upper deck, passengers jostled to find seats or leaned against the railing, calling out to arriving friends. As the crowded ship began swaying back and forth from left to right, Many thought it was a joke, but when the boat leaned over so far that the people began to slide across the floor, panic began. Not only did most passengers not recognize the impending disaster, the master of the Eastland, Peterson, failed to evacuate the ship. He sounded the alarm, but only after it was too late. Many passengers panicked and rushed to the staircases leading upstairs. Sadly, the staircases proved to be the worst single death trap for those passengers within the interior decks of the ship. George Goyette was on the deck when the Eastland rolled and described the experience. What I saw was exactly what you see when you watch a lot of children rolling down the side of a hill. The entire crowd of men, women, and children came slipping and sliding and sprawling down with a mass of lunchboxes, milk bottles, chairs, rubbish of every sort, on top of them. They came down in a floundering, screaming mass, and as the boat turned completely over on its side, crashed into the stairs, carrying them away. Once the Eastland went over, it came to rest on the muddy bottom of the Chicago River in just 20 feet of water. Its bow was a mere 19 feet from the dock. People were struggling in the water, clustered so thickly that they literally covered the surface of the river. A few were swimming, the rest were floundering about, some clinging to a little raft that had floated free, others clutching at anything they could reach at bits of wood, at each other, grabbing each other, pulling each other down, and screaming. The screaming was the most horrible of all, someone at the scene said. About 10,000 people were milling about the riverfront that day. Grocery and poultry merchants, their customers, western electric workers waiting to board other ships. Horrified onlookers raced to the rescue, some jumping into the river. According to one account, a man contemplating suicide at the river's edge jumped in and began saving lives. Others threw whatever they could grab to provide flotation for those struggling in the water, including boards, ladders, and wooden chicken crates. Some of the crates struck passengers in the water, knocking them out and putting them under. Parents clutched children and disappeared together beneath the brown water or lost their grip and watched their children sink out of sight. Because the Eastland capsized so suddenly, no lifeboats or rafts were launched, but the crews of other nearby boats and tugs in the area responded quickly. 
Earlier that morning, the tug Kenosha had been tied to the bow of the Eastland in preparation for towing it out into Lake Michigan. Upon watching the Eastland roll into the Chicago River, the captain ordered his tug to be secured to the dock to form a bridge between the overturned hull of the Eastland and the safety of the dock. The Theodore Roosevelt, docked immediately to the east of the Eastland, was already boarding passengers for the picnic. It was scheduled to depart shortly after the Eastland. After the Eastland went over, pandemonium broke out on the Roosevelt as women and men screamed and fought to get off the ship and back to safety on shore. Several of the crew and passengers on the Theodore Roosevelt joined in on the rescue efforts and threw dozens of life preservers into the river. Many other smaller boats that arrived at the scene became floating hearses. As bodies were pulled from the river, they were placed on the decks and covered, later being transported to shore to be transferred to one of the makeshift morgues. Several heroic volunteer divers assisted the policemen and firemen on the scene, oftentimes going where even professionals would not go. Throughout the day and night, these divers entered the dark, murky areas of the ship, primarily in search of victims' bodies, yet hoping that they would find survivors. Those stuck inside the hull of the overturned Eastland were trapped in fear, Several welders working at nearby shops and job sites rushed to the scene with their welding torches to cut holes in the Eastland's hull. The trap tried to remain calm as hot steel rained down upon them. As the welders frantically worked to reach struggling passengers, they were met with resistance from Eastland Captain Peterson. He had objected to the work being performed by the welders and ordered them to stop cutting holes in the hull as they were ruining his ship. Those observing the spectacle called for the captain to be lynched or drowned. Police arrested Peterson and took him into custody, a move that likely saved him from the mob's intended actions. Dozens of passengers were freed once the holes had been cut through the metal of the ship, thanks to the efforts of the volunteer welders. As the day progressed and victims were pulled from the river, businesses donated the use of their vehicles to help transport the hundreds of bodies. The bodies were initially distributed among numerous locations, including the local businesses, hospitals, and undertaking establishments. Local stores, restaurants, and hotels opened their doors and offered blankets with hot coffee, soup, and sandwiches for survivors struggling to keep warm. Donated linens were also used to cover bodies. 844 people died that day, including 22 entire families. Some were killed instantly after suffering a blow to the head. Many drowned, and perhaps just as many were suffocated and crushed to death by the sliding people and falling debris. Of the passengers who died, 228 were teenagers, 58 were infants and young children, 70% were under the age of 25. 23 was the average age of those who died. Of the 175 women who went home as widows, three were pregnant. 84 men went home as widowers. Hundreds of people faced physical, mental, and spiritual struggle in the wake of the disaster, 
and relief was needed to help survivors and victims' families cope in the aftermath. On Sunday, the day after, hundreds of professionals gathered to provide care in the aftermath. Representatives were dispatched to families' homes, emergency relief stations were opened, and social service agencies sent reports to nurses. On Wednesday, July 28, 1915, Chicago was a city of funerals. So many were scheduled that there were not enough hearses. Fifty-two gravediggers, working 12 hours a day, couldn't keep up with the demand. After one week had passed, the majority of the dead were identified and buried. The day of the disaster, Western Electric immediately allocated $100,000 toward relief of the victims' families. To provide immediate help to dependents of Western Electric employees who had lost their lives, fleets of automobiles were assembled to expedite the travel required to administer the relief work, providing finances for rent, food, mourning clothes, and cemetery charges. An Eastland Disaster Relief Fund for the victims' families was established by the City of Chicago to be administered by the American Red Cross. Within 48 hours of the tragedy, an appeal to the Chicago citizens was made to contribute $200,000. Nearly double that amount was received over the next few weeks by donations from thousands of individuals and companies. Debate over who was to take the blame for the accident went on for decades. Ultimately, it was found that the disaster was caused by conditions of instability, caused by overloading of passengers, lifeboats making the boat top-heavy, mishandling of ballast water, and the ship's faulty construction. The ship was finally righted on August 14, 1915. After the disaster, the Eastling was salvaged and sold to the United States Navy. After restorations and modifications, it was designated a gunboat and renamed USS Wilmot.